Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey. I just want to ask one quick favor before we jump into this episode. You know, I've been organically growing this podcast for over five years, and I need your help to keep the momentum going. There's two things you can do. One is leaving a five-star rating on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Spotify is a lot easier. You'll see the rating button right at the top. Apple Podcasts, you have to scroll down the page a little bit, and you'll see a write a review button. Additionally, if you want to share this out with your audience on your social channels, text it to a friend or colleague or family member, whatever you have to do to pass this along to individuals that you find may need the help and may be looking to get started. So either of those things or both of you like would be appreciative so I can get this podcast out to more individuals and we can help more people get started and move in the right direction to a more happy and fulfilling life. So thanks again for your help and grateful to have you here on another episode. Let's get it started. On today's episode, I welcome in Marsha Stone, who is the CEO and founder of Foundation Stone, a network of boutique-focused programs for individuals and their families struggling with mental health, substance use disorder, and co-occurring disorders across the U.S. Their first featured treatment center, AMEND, is set to open in Austin, Texas in the spring of 2023. Led by a team of specialized medical experts, treatment programs at AMEND will aim to identify the root causes of a mental health diagnosis through integrative and functional medicine. As someone who knows firsthand what overcoming addiction is like, Marsha integrates her own experiences into providing the most effective and quality rehabilitative programming to those struggling with various disorders. So I hope you all enjoyed this wide-ranging conversation with Marsha. And without further ado, please welcome in Marsha Stone. Marsha, welcome to the podcast. Glad to have you. Thank you. Thank you so much for asking me to be here. I'm really excited about um, our conversation today. Yeah, and I always enjoy, you know, having folks from all different unique backgrounds and, and you know, how they got to where they are today. It wasn't just a, you know, stroke of luck and it wasn't just, you know, it happened overnight, right? There's all these different challenges and, and obstacles people had overcome. And, and I thought we'd start our conversation if it's okay, you know, kind of doing some research prior. It seems like, you know, if I put in quotations, you know, fact check me on this, but you're in the business of helping people, right? You love yeah. helping people. And I'm Absolutely. kind of in a similar light. One of the reasons I want to talk to you and, and with the whole just get started mission, but it comes from a place of struggle and fear and anxiety and all these things I grew up with and I had in, in early adulthood. So I'm curious if you could start, because I'm assuming there's something that's happened to you or maybe multiple things of why you decide to help people, because maybe something happened in your life that wasn't as advantageous or, or helpful to you. So can, can you start there? Maybe just give us a little kind of some breadcrumbs yeah. on the on the journey. Yeah, for sure. You know, um, I. Uh, when I think, you know, sort of what was the turning point of my life, and this wasn't the first time that I had really, you know, um, dug deep for something that I wanted to do or something that I needed to do. But it was the first time where I really felt like, you know, the universe was kind of pointing me down a different pathway. And um, so basically what happened was I went to law school um, in my late 20s as, as a single mom and, um, you know, just lots of things going on with a pretty chaotic relationship with my college boyfriend who has been my husband, my best drinking buddy and all that stuff. Um, on the rocks. So I go to law school thinking, you know, I've got to figure out something that I can do that I like to do. And I've always been 
a pretty good communicator and I've always liked um, debate competitions and stuff like that. I like to have logical conversations and I really picked well. I enjoyed being a lawyer. I was like a little, you know, like small town trial lawyer. I started first as, um, as a prosecutor. But the main thing that was happening during those 10 years was I was really struggling with alcoholism. And, um, you know, when I, I, I often say this, but I think people can really relate to it, especially people that are pretty driven and, you know, high functioning. When, when we make up our mind to do something and we make up our, our heart to get in line with our mind that we're going to take the action that's necessary, we can achieve goals like, you know, pretty, pretty much across the board. That's, you know, the thought, the action, the success. But when it came to making up my mind to stop drinking, I could not pull it off. I, I couldn't do it. You know, I mean, you know, recovery literature says powerless. But what ended up happening was I had been in trouble, quote unquote, with the Bar Association in North Carolina and Georgia for so long that, you know, in and out of treatment, in and out of detox and stuff like that. And just really embarrassed, you know, people would say like, Marshall, you have everything going for you. Like, why do you keep doing that? And now I know that that's like asking someone, you know, why do you have cancer? You know, or <laughs> why do you have diabetes? It, it just is. But I didn't understand it at that time. But because I'd struggled for so long, both bar associations came together and I had to sign a five-year, basically, suspension slash resignation of my license. And so I had five years in front of me from the time I got sober and had no idea what to do because I thought all I know how to do is practice law. But I was offered a job working in a recovery center and I'd say probably maybe 60 to 90 days into that position, I knew for sure that this was what I was meant to do, that this was what I was put on this earth to do because I was able to, you know, not only help people, but help people with the very thing being the alcoholism and the addiction that I could not overcome on my own. So it was just like, you know, sort of the perfect storm, if you will, that got me excited and no longer shameful about the alcoholism, able to, you know, speak about it this way. I remember one time I did a, I live in Texas now, and I did sort of a recovery talk for, I think it was like recovery day on the, on the steps of the Capitol in, down in Austin. And I had people calling me up, like, I cannot believe that you went on YouTube and said, you know, I'm Marcia Stone and I'm an alcoholic. And I was like, well, first of all, you don't just go on YouTube. I didn't mean for that to happen, but I don't care that it did. I'm glad that it did because if I can be, you know, a, the face or a face of recovery um, from something that was killing me, you know, not only physically, but emotionally and spiritually and, you know, taking away everything I loved in my life. But, you know, I, I'm very grateful that it was kind of, you know, my, my, struggle was pretty out loud because I lived in small towns and everybody kind of knew. And then the bar association who said, there's something magical that happened, at least for me, that I don't have any secrets anymore. You know, you, you want to talk about drugs? Let's talk about drugs. You want to talk about alcohol? Let's talk about alcohol. You want to talk about recovery? You want to talk about treatment business? Because something very freeing happened within me. And it just like helped me to let loose of all the shackles of shame and regret that I had and to really just go forward with a very clear mission um, 
of what my life was going to be like. Now that's taken different turns from, you know, professional perspective. But when I had that clarity, it was, it was like, it was a gift. Honestly, I felt like it was a gift from the universe because a lot of people never get to that point and they, you know, hide out this problem that is, you know, sort of in our culture, at least sort of, you know, looked at sometimes as um, a moral failure. And, you know, I just try to bring it back to, this is a brain disease. Do you want to talk about neurotransmitters? Because I actually went back to school and got my LTDC, which after law school, I was like, I'm never going back to school. But I've learned you never say never. (laughs) Where does the, uh, you know, so fact check me on this, because I don't know, I don't know if this is accurate or not, but a lot of things, at least I've heard is it, it stems like in terms of different, I say generational, I guess, but if your mm-hmm. parents or family members were alcoholics, there's a good chance yeah. you could be. Is that accurate? Yeah. Is there is there anything that is? Okay. No, there that is, and and there's a huge spectrum, you know, and there's lots of you know difference of opinions. My opinion, if you ask me the question, like what causes alcoholism, it is typically a combination of genetics and some type of um, pain or trauma, usually in early childhood. Um, not always, but um, that's you know, some type of trauma, some type of, you know, hardship in terms of your living conditions combined with genetics. Now, that's not to say that everyone who has a genetic propensity and has had a hard, you know, life at some point becomes alcoholic because they don't, right? There's got to be this, you've got to drink enough so that you cross this line where, you know, they say like, you can't turn um, a pickle back into a cucumber, right? So, and that line is different for everyone. And to me, the the line that you cross is not nearly as important as the surrender that has to happen um, within yourself to, to be able to get to the other side of it. And interestingly enough, you know, um, we'll talk about it, I'm sure, but the, the platform company that I'm starting now is called Foundation Stone. And the reason I chose that is not because my last name is Stone, although, you know, the, the PR people are like, that's great. But it wasn't that. It was in our recovery literature, it says, um, helping others is the foundation stone of my recovery. And that is, you know, in a sentence, who I am and, and what I believe in. So I was happy to to call this new uh, yeah. business Foundation Stone Family of Programs. Well, and, and I just want to touch on one more thing, because, and, and just again, just more for learning, I guess, for myself, when, when we talk about alcoholism, is that, a, a, I guess, a grab bag could be anything from addiction? Because obviously, alcohol, in essence, right, you know, you think of whiskey or beer or whatever, that's mm-hmm. man-made. So it's, it, yeah. it, it's something, it's some addiction thing that almost gives you a little bit, almost numbs you. Is that, is that right. it? Because it could be drugs, it could be something else, right? Absolutely. Okay. And and I call and that's very astute what you're saying. I call it sort of the ism because I might, you know, be alcoholic. You might be addicted to shopping. Someone else may be addicted to relationships or food or exercise or cocaine or heroin or fentanyl. It to me, this is what I've always said. The substance is a symptom, right? The substance doesn't really matter to me. What matters to me is that somewhere along the line, our life was painful to the point that we needed sort of an anesthetic and through genetics or, you know, repeated introduction of some substance into our body, um, you know, this sort of allergy starts to happen. And unless you have experienced that, it just sounds so, it, it sounds crazy. And I understand it sounds crazy, but like I've had the experience where I'm drinking and it almost seems like the more I drink, the thirstier I am. And unless you have sort of the the body that has that strange reaction to 
um, like we said, not only alcohol, drugs, because it's dopamine, right? I mean, it makes you feel good even it, just for a little time. Um, and it feels in a way like um, you know that consequences are going to happen at some point. You realize like this is not going to be different. It's going to be the same and it's going to be bad. But it's almost like that sort of um, prehistoric part of your brain would trade in possible consequences for the five minutes of relief, you know, from, you know, I mean, like, I think most people have had the experience, like, you know, you drink a beer and then go to a party and all of a sudden you can talk to the cute boy or dance or, or whatever, right? It, it sort of lets that um, uh, inhibition down. But when you do that over and over and over again, it gets to the point where the alcohol or whatever substance or whatever behavior isn't working anymore. And you keep trying to do more and more and more with more and more severe consequences. And then we get to the point like, I can't imagine life with alcohol anymore. And I can't imagine life without alcohol anymore. Yeah. And that's when we're sort of at the turning point. Like, what do you want to do? Because we know for sure this ism will end up, you know, in jails, institutions, or, you know, death. And, and that is, that's the hard part, right? Because I never want to, you know, sugarcoat or, you know, paint with pastels because getting into recovery is by far the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, and maintaining my recovery is not as hard, but certainly takes effort. But at the same time, you know, the first question that you asked me, it, it turned my world upside down in the most positive way. And so I'm one of those like annoying people that says, you know, I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful to be an alcoholic. Now, do you obviously have you been you've been sober for fifteen years? Fifteen years, okay, awesome. Yeah. Now, do you yeah. you said something interesting, and I, maybe just the way you worded it, I'm picking up on is: Do you still consider yourself in recovery? Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. I do, I do, because I know for sure that if I were to try to start drinking socially today, it might work for a little bit, but. The way my brain chemistry is, the way my body chemistry is, I, it, it literally is like I'm allergic to it. And, and the, one of the reasons that I continue to say I'm an alcoholic and I'm an alcoholic in recovery, and some people don't like to say that. But again, for me, I don't feel any shame about it. And it's something that when you say it, it kind of gets people's attention. Like I can tell it kind of got your attention like, whoa, you know, um, but I'm, I'm literally grateful. I'm, it, it, it turned my life in a direction where I have an opportunity to help people every single day. And, you know, that is, that's my purpose. That's what, you know, lights my heart on fire. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, and the other part about it too is Brian is I, I have to be honest, right? I have to be rigorously honest. And the honest truth is I know, that I will never be able to drink like a normal person. When you got sober, was that a, you know, I've had folks say, I quit cold turkey and, you mm -hmm. know, never had a drink. You, what, and, and I, this is kind of a two-parter, so kind of stick with me because I think you can kind of weave the answers together, is how did you get sober? Mm -hmm. And based on what you're doing with Foundation Stone and some of the other things you've done, how has... I guess, getting sober or getting in recovery now different than 15 years ago? What's changed? Mm. What's, what's improved, I guess? So what have we learned? That is a really good question. 
I will say, um, yes, I got sober 15 years ago. And the reason that I got sober was because I didn't stop trying to get sober. It, it took me about six years and I was in and out of treatment, like I was saying. And, you know, um, my, my children certainly suffered a lot during that period of time. Um, but I knew I wanted it. I knew I needed it. And I just, there's, I mean, it's such an annoying thing when you hear it, but people will say like, you know, stick around until the miracle happens. The miracle being like, you know, you finally cross that turning point. Um, but I just, I don't know. I guess I was just so hard-headed that I just was not going to accept that I couldn't do this. Um, and I got to the point where I realized I couldn't do it on my own. So then I started to listen to, you know, direction from therapists and doctors and sponsors and advisors and, you know, spiritual guides and, and all kinds of stuff like that. Because basically the way it worked for me is through, you know, um, 12 step programs and, you know, the traditions prevent me from saying, you know, exactly which program I belong to. I'm happy to have a private conversation if anyone wants to know that, but I try to honor, um, you know, the traditions of this amazing program. And really, I think the most important thing that happened was I surrendered that I couldn't do it on my own. And I just stopped questioning that advice and just started taking the advice really from a place of humility, not a place necessarily of defeat, although I guess I was defeated, but it just occurred to me that as a lawyer, if you have a problem, you go into your lawyer's office and you tell them your problem and pay them a bunch of money. And then they give you direction and you take that direction and your problem is hopefully resolved. But with alcoholism, I would have those same kind of conversations with therapists and doctors, et cetera. But for some reason, my mind liked to tell me that my case was a little bit different or they didn't quite understand. So this is the reason I can't go to long-term treatment because I have kids. I'm a mom. I'm a wife. I have a business. Those are all just excuses. And when, you know, those parts of my life had suffered the consequences of my continuing down that road of not in recovery, um, I was able to finally just surrender and, and just take direction. And I went to long-term gender-specific treatment, which, you know, interestingly is, is the first program that I built when I got into this industry. Um, and uh, just took a lot of my experiences and, um, and, and created an atmosphere that worked for me when I was struggling. And ever since then, I've been able to become interested in different types of um, uh, demographic groups that need a different type of treatment. And I've just become really um, a sort of a student of um, what works for one person doesn't necessarily work for another person. Yeah. And just to really be an open book about that and, and continuing to learn. I will say the other thing you asked me about what is what's different. So people talk about recovery a lot more now, right? Mm -hmm. um, back then, it was still kind of a, you know, like, you know, yeah. um, at, at your family dinners and stuff like that. And I also remember that when I was getting in trouble, and I use that term on purpose with the bar associations, it, I can see now that, yes, they were trying to help, but it felt very punitive at the time. 
And now these days, I'm not saying that, you know, our society gets it right, but I think that there are a lot more people that have opened their eyes to, um, you know, you can't necessarily punish the alcoholism out of somebody, you know, only through really, you know, repair, recovery, those type of things to, um, to, to address the illness. But I, I, I think that, I think that people, especially professionals, encounter less punitive boards now um, and boards that are more educated and want to, um, you know, rehabilitate instead of, you know, yeah. dismiss. Well, isn't it, and, and this may be a, a side a side alleyway to take, but you see this a lot, of, I think, with the the prison system is we, we put people in prison of, you know, yeah. maybe, okay, maybe it's for drugs or whatever, but the, the reality yeah. is they it's probably treatment, it's health they need. It's not being behind bars, right? Right. And that's where, right. I, that's right. where I see. I've like heard the, all kinds yeah. of different statistics. It's, yeah, and, and there's so many statistics about that, and that kind of gets us into a whole other conversation about, you know, if I wasn't white, if I wasn't a female, you know, would I have gotten prosecuted for the things that I did? Would I be in jail instead of sitting here in my home, you know, on a podcast talking about the, all the businesses that I've started to help people? I don't know, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that question, but I will say that I do think that race and gender play play a large role in some of the statistics that we hear about people going to prison for long periods of time for drug offenses and nonviolent crimes. You said something earlier too, I want to make sure I touch on, and, and this may be, you know, I don't know what, what the term would be. This may be connected, maybe not, but you mentioned about, you know, genetics being a part of this. I would assume part of that is personality. So if you're someone that's yeah. very ambitious, you're someone that I'll use the word controlling, or you want to control the situation, you want to have the answer. Yeah, that isn't going to help. Yeah. Because to your point, right, is you're like, I can solve this myself, like I could figure it out. I don't need help. Mm -hmm. Is that part of it as well? Like, is that why it's some people have I mean, a, a challenge was part of my experience? Okay, yeah, okay. I didn't know if that's what you all see with with some of the different yeah, care I mean, centers I think, and stuff. Is that part of it? You know, I've heard that like lawyers and doctors and airline pilots are the hardest people to to be able to treat to to get into recovery. I mean, I don't have any specific statistics about that, so I can only speak about myself. But you know, I think that this sort of type A driven personality. We don't say it out loud because it's it's rude, but inside we all kind of think like I'm the smartest person in the room, you know, and, yeah. and when you're thinking that and your experience with your life is not lining up to that, it's like, are you going to admit that you don't know everything about this and you need help or are you just going to keep on to the bitter end? And um, I mean, I fought it for a long time. I, I fought it for a long time and I tried all kinds of things, yoga, hiking, church, um, you know, being a vegetarian, I mean, if you, there's so much written out there and different, you know, like little rabbit holes that you can kind of go down that, I don't know, for me, it just, it, it just got more and more obvious over time that I wasn't going to be able to do this on my own. And having the humility to admit that in my experience is not like, sort of organic or born within me, it was just um, a result of sort of facts. <laughs> yeah. Well, you mentioned it took many years to kind of get over that hump and, and get that humility. 
Was there anything specific you remember? Like maybe it was a certain session, maybe it was certain questions that you never went down that path. Like, was there anything specific of why it took that long? Like what, when it actually clicked, do you remember mm-hmm. why it clicked? I do. And, and it really all has to do with being willing to take direction. I say this lots of times, recovery, when you boil it all down, it's being willing to take directions for your best interest that don't originate from your own mind, right? And so I remember this turning point where I was, I'd been in the treatment center, the last one that I went to, you know, knock on wood, the only, the last one I'll ever go to, um, about two weeks. And I started getting that like real antsy feeling um, that I didn't want to be there. All the excuses kept coming back in my mind. And, you know, you can convince yourself that leaving is the best thing that, that you should do. But I, uh, I set an appointment or maybe I just walked in her office. I don't remember, but to the director of the program where I was and I was telling her kind of, you know, what's going on and I want to leave and, you know, I'm scared and all this stuff. And she sort of challenged me um, about doing something that I had never done before, which was taking directions, like period, no argument, no negotiation, none of that. And I thought about it for a second and I really had a lot of respect for this woman. And, you know, like I said, my back was up against the wall and I said to her, okay, if I stay in this treatment center, as long as you tell me to, I do every um, assignment you give me. I don't bend the rules. I mind the curfew and I stay here until you guys say I'm well and I'm ready to go. If I do all those things and I drink again, despite of that, then it's your fault. And I'm going to move to the Virgin Islands and I'm going to drink like forever. And she literally stuck out her hand and said, I'll take that deal. And for me, that was almost like an outward manifestation of the surrender that was happening within my heart. But I needed someone to reassure me just like one little bitty last time that if I would take direction, I could, I could have recovery. You know, because if you've been out of treatment for so long, you start to sort of internalize this failure. And I've begun, I'd come to believe that I couldn't get sober because I had tried and tried and tried, but I had tried, but I had not surrendered. And so there's a bit difference with that. And and that's what it took for me. And and I did, I did exactly what she said. And, and um, I had a real powerful experience there. Um, And honestly, like I was so broken. I mean, I think if they told me like to, wear a yellow polka dot bikini to group every day, I would have done it. You know what I mean? Like I was just so tired and so broken and I was tired of disappointing, you know, family, career, like bosses, all that kind of stuff. And I wanted to change and I was ready to change. What was, um, if if you don't mind sharing, obviously it took you a long time to get sober. What was the Mm -hmm. trigger to put you back to drinking? Like when you, you probably were maybe sober for a couple yeah. days or a week or two or whatever. Yeah. What was the trigger for you or what has been? Have you yeah, really figured I mean, that out? Yeah, tr- trigger, trigger's a hard word to really identify because some people mean different things by it than others. But what I will say is I needed, I needed something in addition to just not physically having alcohol in my body. I needed sort of this, you know, this spiritual turning point where the other centeredness started to be the focus of my life versus, you know, the self-centeredness that had kind of, um, you know, dominated me for a long time. 
And when I say self-centeredness, I don't mean that as arrogance. I don't even mean that as like stinginess. I don't mean it like that. I mean, like being overly focused on what's going on with me as a result of, of what's happening, like outside of me. I don't, I don't think I'm doing a good job of explaining that, but it's almost like seeing everything through the lens of how does it affect me? versus what can I give back to the universe? Who can I help today? What can I do that would be, you know, um, a, a very, a, a very uh, sort of something to give back to, like they, they say, are you, are you in the stream of life? Meaning like, are you showing up for your responsibilities? Are you, are you doing these outwardly focused things? So for me, I had to have that, which is sort of the spiritual program of action, which I call recovery, I had to have that as well as no substance in my body, because if it was just no substance in my body and I didn't have sort of these other spiritual tools that I ended up learning in recovery, it just fell short every time. And I've wanted to change the way that I felt. It doesn't matter really if I was sad or happy or, you know, celebrating or, or you know, crying in my Cheerios. Whenever I felt bad, it was like this, you know, like I said, this his prehistoric part of my brain, you know, knew one way for me to feel better. And that was through substances. Mm -hmm. And it just was a merry-go-round in a way. It just went on and on and on and on to the point where I was really taught how to live a life in recovery because it wasn't something that came very naturally to me. It's like you're learning and, a new habit, right? I mean, you're yeah, exactly. It. Exactly. And I also learned that, you know, my family had struggled for generations with alcoholism. And that was something in the deep South. I'm from South Georgia and, you know, you don't, you don't air your dirty laundry. That was like, you know, what we all grew up with. And, um, you know, to the point that we didn't air it at all. We didn't even talk about it inside our house. So when I began to sort of put all those pieces together, it made sense to me of why I struggled as, as long and hard as I did. Well, so, and that's what I want to ask you, because we've touched on a couple of times, right? This is generational. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's happened for a lot in your family. So the statistics would show mm -hmm. you have kids, mm -hmm. right? How do you talk to your kids about this? Honestly, that's one of the things I'm most proud of because my um, my older three kids, my husband and I have been married for 22 years now, and I have three kids from my first marriage. He has one from his first marriage, and we have one together. So the three kids that are from my first marriage was with my college drinking buddy, you know, like I said. And I just told them their whole life about genetics and they watched me, right? I mean, they watched that struggle. They lived that struggle with me because they were in you know, middle school and in high school and it was really hard on them. But the thing I'm really proud of is because they saw my struggles and they saw me not give up, all three of them now, one's 32, one's 31 and one's 28, they're all in recovery. And that's because they had the language, the language of my home is recovery language, right? Um, we talk about God, we talk about helping others, we talk about, you know, um, character assets and defects and stuff like that. And so when they started to struggle, they had the language to ask for help, you know, a good decade, almost a decade and a half before I did in my own life, because they have been introduced to this world where recovery is not only okay, but it's, you know, life-changing in the very best way. And so I feel like even though they were, they, they suffered some trauma and stuff because of my alcoholism, absolutely no doubt about it, but they also got the message loud and clear that recovery is possible. Yeah. 
that's always, you know, I always wonder, I have a 10 year old and I always wonder like the convert, cause, cause you know, I haven't, again, fortunately, I guess I haven't go, gone through any of that. So I, it's yeah. not something, do I have, how do I have the conversation with him? Mm. Do I have the conversation? You know, like those are type of things mm. of, you always try to figure out, I guess, as a parent, you want to do the best you can and you want to share, right. you know, cause I think growing up probably to, maybe similar to you, I don't know, like growing up, it was like, we don't talk about anything. Nothing. We, we don't talk about anything. Put it, put it aside. It's not sweep it on the rug. Now I think, you know, folks are realizing like, no, let's have, like, I'm one thing I'm very grateful for is I have so much open dialogue with my son. I mean, we talk about yeah. everything, which yeah. is cool, but it's like, okay, what, should, what do I have to yeah. temper anything? Like where's so, the yeah. line? Right? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So that's why I figured to ask if there was anything specific and maybe you're seeing in the, in the treatment care centers, maybe if there's kids that are yeah. coming in or teenagers coming in, how, how do you Absolutely. talk about and it's only it's not only addiction that the younger kids are coming in with now. It's the level of trauma is unbelievable. A lot of that is because the opiate epidemic, right? Because you know, I did I drank for all through college and law school and my twenties and half my thirties, but um, I I didn't have friends die of overdose. You know, it wasn't like your five best friends that you grew up with, three of them are dead and two are in jail because of opiates and fentanyl. And that is the norm now, right? And I remember I was sitting in a, I was doing like a process group. This was maybe like four or five years ago with some clients. And I just sort of made a mental note. Like I looked around the circle and there were six guys in the circle with me. And every single one of them had lost either a family member or a close friend to overdose and death within the last 12 months. And just think about that. Like that is, talk about triggering abandonment issues and, you know, not being able to, you know, trust God or, or the, your higher power, the universe or whatever you want to call it. And so it's just, it's been a lot harder. And you know what I tell my son, my youngest son now is 18. And I tell him, like, don't take anything. And I hate to say that because, you know, I think everybody deserves an opportunity to go to college and kind of sow their oats or whatever. But fentanyl is in everything these days. And you cannot predict what it's going to be and what it's not going to be. And we've had kids come into the treatment center that all that they were doing was smoking weed and it was laced with fentanyl. Mm -hmm. And some of them lived through it and some of them didn't. But either way, they were introduced to this very, very, very toxic, dangerous and addictive substance. And um, this is probably like a non-politically correct thing to say. But, you know, back in the day when I was buying weed or even, you know, cocaine or, or whatever, the thought never occurred to me that this was going to kill me, yeah. but that's what you have to think about today. And, um, I don't understand it. I don't know enough to you know, really speak intelligently about how all that has happened. And honestly, I don't think that we will have that real answers probably for 10 to 20 years, just based on us news cycles, et cetera. But, um, it's terrifying now. And it's like, you know, it's, it's as a parent, it's, it scares the hell out of me. It really does. Yeah. Well, so then what are you hopeful with? So obviously foundation stone it's, and, I, and now your first location is just launching or did launch or right. Today is to, the oh, today. first day. Today's oh, the wow. day. Big day. Um, yeah. Um, so foundation stone is, is like the parent company. Cause I'm going to do a few programs that um, I have in my mind and heart. And the first one is a primary mental health program here in Austin. It's called amend wellness. And um, I'm really excited about it. It's the first primary mental health program that I've done, but it's also combined with a lot of integrative and functional medicine. Mm -hmm. So if you think of, you know, like 
Western tradition for for mental health is like a psychiatrist and a prescription. Mm-hmm. And then Eastern might be, um, you know, so many hours in the sunlight, um, you know, cold plunge, infrared sauna, uh, you know, acupuncture, whatever it is. So we've got a lot of those kind of activities going on too. really just trying to help people understand, you know, their diagnosis and understand the things that they can incorporate into their life that aren't necessarily medications mm-hmm. um, that can really help them to take charge of, of their diagnosis and realize that their diagnosis is not the definition of them. Um, and to be really confident about how to, um, you know, live with an illness and not unlike alcoholism, right? Mm-hmm. I had to learn. I, I had to learn how to do that. Yeah. What, uh, how are you setting up these treatment centers? Any, anything, again, going back to your relationship with them when you were in, mm-hmm. like anything different that like you've changed? Anything you've kept where you're like, wow, this really worked. I want to make sure this is yeah. It. Well, I was, I mean, I guess I'm considered the founder of um, BRC, it is BRC Healthcare now, it was BRC Family of Programs, and and I, with a great team, you know, built that, that those companies, and we had the BRC programs, and we had a young adult program, and then we had a trauma program, so some of the lessons that I learned on the, along the way there were to, you know, um, I, I believe in my focus, and, you know, my my um my goal is to have smaller programs like niche or boutique programs that um, address specific things because I, I I think that you know treatment is just like anything else right if you go somewhere and they tell you you know like they do it all they treat it all then they probably don't treat much right but if you go to a place where there's experts who are dedicated to mental health or dedicated to young adult treatment or dedicated to, um, you know, a trauma focused program. And so that's really my goal is to continue this, um, this, I guess would be sort of like, you know, the second platform of programs I will have built once it's off the ground and just to continue to really specialize in things, because then you're, you put yourself in a position with the right staff and the right um, location and ambiance and, you know, programs, et cetera, to really help a specific um, subset of people. And um, that's what I do. That sounds like a, <laughs> a great endeavor for sure. Yeah. Yeah. The second one that's going to be under um, Foundation Stone is going to be um, a women's only program. I can't tell you much about it except for that. And it's probably going to open late summer. I'm really excited about that because that's where, you know, I, I shared before, that's where my journey in this industry started. Mm-hmm. And um, and I love to I love to help women because I understand the specific challenges. And like I said before, all the shame of, you know, being a mom and not being able to be there to take care of, dot, dot, dot. All those things that women, you know, take on themselves historically. I'm excited about that program. And then I have another idea, but I'm not sure if I'm going to go forward with that one. So I'll have to come back to you and uh, yeah, there we go. We'll do, we'll do a later. part two at, at some point. That's there right. That's right. <laughs> well, uh, for this conversation, anything you would share, you know, whether it's around getting started, it, it could be mm. businesses, it could be just self improvement, whatever. Anything you would leave the the audience with? Any last thoughts or comments? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I love your podcast. I love. Thank you for having me, and I love your your mission. And what I would say, um, one of the things I say is I build to the need, meaning that I pay attention 
to what's happening around me? Um, you know, how do you get an idea to do a mental health program? Well, um, I've had this client and this client and this client, and they've struggled with this and I didn't have the answers and here's why. So I think, you know, number one, without going into too much detail, pay attention, right, to your field and, and whatever it is that you're in. Number two would be to um, create a team around you and don't be afraid if they're smarter than you or know more than you do about something. Um, have the humility and the courage to employ really smart people and listen to them. And number three is just to know deep down within yourself that you have everything that it takes to create or to, um, to complete the mission that your higher power has put in front of you. I remember one time, this is sort of a, a weird thing to say, but I was, I like, I'm a Beyonce fan. And I went to a Beyonce concert, maybe like six, seven years ago now. And at one point during the performance, it was in Atlanta and she stopped everything. Everything was quiet and the musicians were quiet. And she said essentially what I just said, which is, I want to tell you something, everything that you need to create happiness and success in your life is within you right now. It's a matter of you trusting yourself and you're listening to your own intuition and you can have, and you can be anything that you can dream of. And I was like, I mean, hello, if Beyonce says that it must be true. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I'm sort of being silly right now, but the truth is that's how I felt. And she said it. And now it's become a part of my, you know, my sort of, you know, toolkit in a way. I can remind myself, you can do it. And if I'm talking to you or anybody else, it's like, if you can think it, you can do it. And there's only one you and there's only one um, version of you that we need. And so when ideas or, um, you know, just something exciting that passes your mind, if you ask, you know, three or four people, they might all say, no, no, you can never do that. Don't talk to them. Know that you can do it and know that you have the tools, the mindset, the heart, and the energy and enthusiasm and the grit to get it done. Yeah. That's a great way to uh, end our conversation, Marshall. Where can everyone say hello to you? Do, you? do you hang out in any social watering holes at all? Or Well, I have LinkedIn, Marshall Stone. I have um, Facebook, Instagram. And I have um, a website, marshastone.com. And if you want to send me an email, it's very hard to remember, marcia at marshastone.com. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I love to talk to people and, and just be helpful however I can. And um, I'm just really grateful to be sitting here today talking about, you know, what it's like to be able to overcome struggles and what it's like to be able to build something that, you know, your heart has dreamed about. And I will say, if I can do it, anybody can do it because there was many, many times in my life where people that knew me pretty well had pretty much written me off yeah. and um, just don't stop. Yeah. Just don't stop. Well, I appreciate the vulnerability and it definitely helps. Uh, I'm sure it's going to help a lot of people here in your, uh, your message, your story. Mm -hmm. So thank you again. Oh my gosh. Thank you for having me and, and, and being willing to listen. You know, I think it starts with conversations like this. Hey everyone, and just one more quick thing before you head off on your day. If you're enjoying this podcast and are looking for other resources and tools to help you get started and move forward toward a happier and more fulfilling life, then I'd encourage you to head over to my website, brianondraco.com, and hit the subscribe button in the upper right corner. 
There you can find my newsletter and blog subscriptions where I share insights and information around getting unstuck, perspective, mindset, relationships, habits, and much more. If you get a chance to sign up, I hope you enjoy. Thanks again for listening in and have a phenomenal day.